Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. Did Jesus destroy the temple and change the law of God? If so, was this blasphemy? Find out the biblical solutions to these challenging dilemmas in our study of Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. Today we're in Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53, and normally we read the whole chapter at the beginning of the episode. We're not going to do that this time. We're going to read only the first verse and then take the chapter incrementally as we move through it because it's such a long reading. Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, The Bible says, Then the high priest said, Are these things so? In our last study, we saw the movement of Stephen, the Hellenistic Jew, from serving as a deacon, assisting in the ministry to the widows, to serving as an evangelist, proclaiming Christ in the synagogues of his people in Jerusalem. But very soon, his work met with fierce opposition from certain unbelievers in that community, particularly those from a synagogue called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. The opposition began with debates during his teaching in the synagogue services. When these failed, it turned into false accusations spread through gossip and whispering. When these failed, the accusations were made public and Stephen was brought into a trial before the Sanhedrin, the very court that had worked out the execution of Jesus himself and through very similar charges. Just as in the case of Jesus, false witnesses were hired to misrepresent the teachings of Stephen in an effort to convict him of blasphemy. He was accused of speaking against the temple and the law of Moses by predicting that Jesus would destroy the temple and change the law. As we noted in our previous study, there was an element of truth in these accusations, but the claim that Stephen preached these things in opposition to God, or even to Moses himself, was false. In fact, Stephen was a spokesman of the Son of God, of whom Moses wrote and testified, and who Moses commanded the people of Israel to hear and to hope for. So when the high priest, presumably Caiaphas, challenged him to plead guilty or innocent with the question, Are these things so? Luke says that Stephen, with that striking and stern countenance of a messenger of God, began to speak. Verse 2, And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. What followed was a sermon. That does not surprise us because it was a typical practice in keeping with the prophetic charge of Jesus himself in Mark chapter 10 and verse 9, that when Christians were put on trial, they used that occasion to preach the gospel. However, this sermon has given scholars and commentators over the years a great deal of trouble and consternation, even after the benefit of reading the whole speech in its context, with Luke setting the stage and being able to examine and re-examine each line and word Many readers are very confused as to why Stephen said what he did 
and why he did not spend his time on something that was more clearly related to the charges that were brought against him. Stephen's sermon is the longest, or perhaps more accurately, the most complete sermon recorded in the book of Acts, and some people have called it a summary of the Old Testament, or a survey of Israelite history. That really doesn't seem to fit, because many of the most remarkable and significant events in the Old Testament aren't even mentioned. There's no word about the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the creation, the flood, or the formation of the nations at Babel. Stephen begins with some words on the life of Abraham, but he leaves out some significant details and events, most remarkably the offering of Isaac and the occasion when Moses reported that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, even though those are the two most talked about events in Abraham's life in other parts of the New Testament. The lives of many of the great men of the past are summarized with a single sentence, or merely by the mention of their names. The same is true of great events like the conquest of Canaan or the Babylonian captivity, and some are completely omitted, and yet meticulous detail is given regarding happenings that seem in the Old Testament narratives themselves to be of minor importance, and some which are not even mentioned by the Old Testament writers explicitly. So we should not think of Stephen's sermon as a summary or survey of the Old Testament or Israelite history, but rather we should give careful attention to understand just exactly what he selected to mention and to understand as best we can why he did this. In order to understand these things, we need to establish both the theme and the outline of the sermon. Now, in spite of the frequent charge that the content of the sermon had little to do with the accusations brought against Stephen, I suggest the exact opposite is true. The sermon focuses on two points. First, God's purpose in the temple, and second, what it truly means to submit to or resist God's law. He does not discuss these subjects in sequence, but rather he blends them together throughout the presentation. And when he's finished, it is quite clear who the real blasphemers are and who is honoring and following the will of God. The outline of the sermon can be difficult to establish, and there have been several suggestions, but the most compelling, in my estimation, is the one suggested by Professor Gareth Reese. Verses 2 through 16, the case of Abraham and the patriarchs. Verses 17 through 29, the case of Moses in Egypt. Verses 30 through 43, the case of Israel in the wilderness. And verses 44 through 50, the case of the tabernacle and the temple. So, with this structure and these ideas in mind, we can analyze the content of the sermon with deeper clarity. Picking up again in verse 2, And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. He opens with terms of respect, both for his countrymen and the leaders before whom he stands. Even in an hour of unjust trial, as a true Christian, Stephen is willing to humble himself for the sake of the gospel, and not to speak evil of dignitaries. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, 
and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives, and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land, and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them four hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. After that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him, and delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers out first. And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, seventy-five people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and his fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb, that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Now, in this section, we have elements of both themes, God's purpose in the temple and the true essence of honoring God's law. They are discussed extensively, though subtly. From Abraham to the death and burial of Joseph, Stephen describes how the God of glory, that is, God in all of his glory was not limited to a building in Jerusalem in the land of Israel. He was at work in Mesopotamia, in Haran, in Canaan before the conquest, in Egypt, and in Shechem, which at the time of this sermon was in the territory of the Samaritans. In all of those places, he was calling, promising, leading, and blessing his people, working out his eternal plan and purpose. When Stephen cites the Abrahamic promises, he leaves out the blessing to the nations. His focus is on the land promise, and even when he mentions the promise of offspring, he emphasizes its connection to the land. Verse 5, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But perhaps the most important part of this section is in verse 7 when he announces that God's intention in giving the land to Abraham and his descendants through all the years and struggles of the lives of the patriarchs, the strange and providentially directed experiences of Joseph, the Egyptian bondage, the deliverance in the Exodus, the plagues that subjugated Egypt, the preservation of the people in the wilderness, the miraculous empowerment to conquest the land from the Canaanites, all of that was for one great purpose— not merely to give property to Abraham's posterity, but that they shall come out and serve me in this place. The full and free worship of God 
was the end goal of God's work in the lives of the patriarchs. And in a moment, Stephen will ask and answer the question, was that end goal accomplished in the Jerusalem temple or something else? In the section about the life of Joseph, we find some other meaningful points. The fathers of Israel rejected their brother Joseph when it was made clear that God had chosen him for a great work. They sold him into bondage in Egypt and moved on with their lives as though he was dead. But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom. And in the end, the patriarch's salvation and participation in the blessings of Abraham were possible only by coming to Joseph, learning who he was, and accepting God's purposes in him. The parallels between the experience of Joseph and his brothers and that of Jesus Christ with the very sons of Israel to whom Stephen was speaking are impossible to miss. But this scene of Israel rejecting God's chosen servant and their Savior sets the stage for the next phase in the sermon. Verse 17, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people, and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born, and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away, and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and deeds." Now when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed, and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting, and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me, as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. In this section, Stephen shifts his focus from where God is Although the case is continually made, Moses was enslaved in Egypt, left in the Nile River, brought into Pharaoh's household, finally he flees to Midian, but God is always present. Yet the special focus of Stephen here is on Moses himself, and especially on his rejection by his brethren in Israel, though he was God's chosen servant. Stephen recalls how, in the midst of Israel's suffering in Egypt, God worked in the life of Moses similarly to how he had worked in the life of Joseph and brought him through perils and challenges and adversities to a position of unthinkable power and preparedness to what Israel needed. Stephen explicitly highlights that Moses himself left a mere implication of his upbringing. As a son of Pharaoh's daughter, he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians 
and he offers a more accurate portrayal of Moses than his own meekness would permit in his autobiographical material, that he was mighty in words and deeds. All of this should have made it clear to the Israelites that God would deliver them by his hand, and Moses reasonably expected them to understand that. The implication of what Stephen tells us is that God had somehow revealed to Moses while he was still in Egypt that he was going to use him for this work. But, Stephen continues, they, that is his brethren in Israel, did not understand. When Moses determined in his heart to visit his people, an expression used to describe the work of elders, meaning to lead and to look after them, he was pushed away, even to the point that his life was put in danger and he had to flee the country. Perhaps the most important feature of Stephen's material here is the words of the Israelite against Moses. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? A simple look at Moses' life would have assumed the answer to that question. God had made him a ruler and a judge. And to resist the servant of God was to resist God himself. The section ends with Moses and Midian starting a family and planning to move forward with his life. Then verse 30. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, in a bush, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. It was not Jerusalem. It was not the temple, but God was there, and it was holy ground. Verse 34, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out, after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. The messenger of God, who the people rejected, was God's chosen deliverer for them, literally, He was their redeemer. To reject God's authority is to reject God's promises and God's redemption. It is to ensure one's own destruction. Verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren him shall you hear. This was a prophecy of Jesus the Messiah, according to the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 3, verses 22 through 23. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. 
As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. This is what blasphemy against the law of God really looks like. Rejecting God's servant, disobeying God's commandments, worshiping idols, which Stephen brilliantly describes as rejoicing in the works of your own hands. And remember that expression. We're going to come back to it in just a moment. Verse 42, Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. This is the same language used by the Apostle Paul to describe the degeneration of the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32, as it is written in the book of the prophets. In the days of Jesus and the early church, the twelve prophets that we call minor because of their size were counted as one book, the book of the twelve or the book of the prophets. And the particular reference that Stephen is speaking about is drawn from Amos chapter 5, verses 26 through 27. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. This is an interesting prophetic oracle that bears some extra attention. The oracle was originally given to the northern kingdom of Israel in reference to the Assyrian captivity that God was sending against them as a judgment for their idolatry. The prophet began with a rhetorical question. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? As with most rhetorical questions, the answer to this one is likely yes, but there is a qualification. He's talking about the period of time when the Israelites wandered for their faithless generation to die off in punishment for their refusal to enter Canaan. Though they offered sacrifices and worship to God during those years, God did not accept it because it was tainted by their clandestine and secretive worship of idols. Although these things are not mentioned in the book of Numbers, Amos reveals that God was aware that those people were carrying with them idols, which they themselves had manufactured to worship the astral deities of the nations around them. Amos further states that God has seen the same idolatries carried on by the Israelites of his own day, and that they pay hypocritical lip service to Yahweh, but that will not save them from judgment. In the original text, he says, therefore I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus. But Stephen modifies the words to say, beyond Babylon. And while there are several ideas as to why he does this, most likely it is to impress his listeners with the fact that these words applied to them as well. If they shared in the sins of their fathers, if they rejected God's appointed deliverers, they could expect the same kind of judgment and ruin, and hypocritical sacrifices would not save them. In verse 44, reaching his conclusion, he says, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, 
as he appointed instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. By noting that the tabernacle was given by God's appointment and made according to God's pattern, Stephen ties together the two great themes of God's purpose in the temple and the true nature of honoring God's law through submitting to his authority. Continuing, he says, "...which, tabernacle or tent, our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob." That last sentence is interesting and a little unusual, and I think the point is to emphasize that while the tabernacle was God's appointment, the temple came at the request of a man. He was a noble man, to be sure, but God did not even permit him to build it. Stephen doesn't mention God's response to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 5-7, through but it would be good for us to read it. God says, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? It seems that God's response to David was that he was perfectly satisfied with a tabernacle. He allowed the temple to be built as a concession, more than a necessary part of the unfolding of his purpose. Remember that. We'll talk about it more in just a moment. I think this interpretation is supported by the rest of Stephen's words on the matter. He tersely continues in verse 47, But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. If the temple was a concession, like the monarchy itself, that does not mean that God was unable to use it for his purposes and his glory, but it should not be surprising that concessions from the divine course to meet the desires of men cause trouble. Stephen describes the temple of Solomon as made with hands, That is the same expression he used to describe the idols of Israel's past. He called the idolatry of the fathers rejoicing in the works of their own hands. And now here are their sons turning the temple itself into an idol, honoring the house over the living God, clinging to the symbol. In fact, a modified version of the symbol and rejecting the reality. Stephen roots his claims in the Old Testament scripture. As the prophet Isaiah says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all of these things? And it was not only the prophets, even Solomon himself had made this observation at the dedication of the temple. 1 Kings 8.27, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple that I have built. The Lord Jesus endorsed this conclusion in his discourse with the Samaritan woman at the well of Sychar, John 4.21-24. 
Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God's purpose, promised long ago to Abraham, to be worshipped and served by his people in fullness and freedom, could not be accomplished by the Jerusalem temple, because God is greater than any temple. The spiritual God cannot be fully and perfectly praised by fleshly and symbolic ordinances. Rather, a spiritual God needs a spiritual house and spiritual sacrifices, as the Apostle Peter calls the assembly and the worship of the Lord's church in 1 Peter 2 and verse 5. As with all the promises to Abraham, this one could only be truly and fully fulfilled in and by the Messiah. At this point, it's difficult to say whether Stephen has worked himself up into a passionate indignation against his countrymen. He's thinking about how he was on trial for blasphemy, but they were the ones who had rejected the Lord's Messiah and turned the temple into an idol. They're the ones who ought to be on trial. Or maybe the crowd had been listening well, but they're realizing the course of his sermon, and so they begin to degenerate into jeering and mockery. Whatever the case, in verse 51, the sermon takes a sharp turn from history and from discussing spiritual concepts to speaking directly to the sins of his audience. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the heart and ears. This was a way that Moses himself had described those who might submit to the external sign of the covenant and been circumcised in their flesh, but not be loyal to God in the inner man or their moral lifestyle. In Deuteronomy 10, 16 and 30 and verse 6, Stephen continues, You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. The history lesson has come home. Just as Joseph and Moses were God's elect ones, in spite of Israel's rejection, so is Jesus. To resist him and the preaching of his word is to resist the Holy Spirit of God. Stephen continues, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers. You have taken your place among the condemned and doomed described in the very scriptures we've just read. And he closes with this very interesting accusation, calling them, You who have received the law by the direction of angels, and have not kept it. Now, it's quite clear that he has in mind the law of Moses. And according to many scriptures in the New Testament, the law of Moses was delivered through the mediation or direction of angels. That is mentioned in various places for various reasons, but why does he mention it here? Before the sermon began... Luke tells us that those who looked at Stephen saw him as though he had the face of an angel. They should have seen in his countenance and in his form, and they should have heard in his words that he was the messenger of God. 
but they were in the habit of rejecting instruction from angels. This is what real lawlessness looks like. Stephen was no blasphemer. He was a dignified, pious, righteous servant of God. He had defended himself and proclaimed the glory of Jesus Christ in the process. He spoke of the holy things of ancient times with reverence, and he boldly announced the next stage in God's plan. The law of Moses had given way, not to rebelliousness and human wisdom, but to the law of Christ, of whom Moses and God himself said, Hear him, listen to him. The temple would be destroyed, but not because God's plans had been foiled by some wicked opponent of the truth. It would pass away as a sign that the true temple of God was now among men, the church of Jesus Christ. The Messiah and his kingdom have arrived. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way. While we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and do trust and obey.